Hey, this is Keith uh, from Every Time I Die, author of Watch and Scale, um, both out on Rare Bird Books. Uh, just want to let you know you're listening to Buffalo, New York's own Classical Ideas podcast. Thank you to Keith Buckley, a fantastic writer and vocalist, for the guest cameo introduction. Hello, Keith. I am so excited for the new Every Time I Die record. Stay safe and hang in there, my friend. This is Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. So, folks, we are in a very challenging time right now and will be for the foreseeable future. A global pandemic is upending the way we are living in the world right now. I personally feel alarmed, anxious, in pain, uncertain, and it's likely you feel that way too. I prefer to be honest about how I feel right now, and I want to talk about it. So in religion and literature, both of which I'm deeply interested in, the idea of a global flood, whether metaphorical or real, can look any different number of ways, is present across many traditions. God's tire of humans and unleash destruction, these situations could be described as apocalypses or endings. Apocalypses are engaging stories. Some people out there want actual apocalypses to occur. These apocalypse folks spend vast amounts of money and time preparing, praying, wishing for the end. I spoke to an anonymous guest on episode 26 about the excitement apocalyptic groups feel when discussing the end and how challenging it can be to extricate oneself from such an environment. So this has been on my mind lately. And on April 1st, 2020, which as of recording is yesterday, an essay about apocalypses and endings was published by Killing the Buddha called It's the End and Nothing Feels Fine. The author, Dr. Kelly J. Baker, is a scholar of religion, essayist, and editor who is well-versed in the stories of apocalypses. She is a self-described scholarly apocalypse chaser, reminiscent of the term storm chaser. Dr. Baker doesn't necessarily feel like chasing apocalypse stories, but she feels the need to do so anyway. I've wanted to have her on this show for a long time, and this article from Killing the Buddha is the perfect reason to do so. Dr. Baker is also the author of Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915-1930, Grace Period, A Memoir in Pieces, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, and Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. She is active on Twitter at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker, where she is moving, open, and honest about a range of topics she cares about. This conversation, which I just finished recording with her 20 minutes ago, is fabulous. It was soothing to me because we both feel nervous and we do not hide it. So please do read her moving essay, It's the End and Nothing Feels Fine, from Killing the Buddha. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kelly J. Baker.
Dr. Kelly Baker, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is a delight to have you here. If you could spend a moment and introduce yourself however you see fit, that would be great. Oh, man, I hate bios. Um, I'm so so, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Uh, So I am primarily an editor and writer. I am the editor of Women in Higher Education and the National Teaching and Learning Forum, uh, both higher ed publications. Um, I'm also the author of a few different books, um, but largely my interests um, revolve around a couple of different things, um, apocalypses, uh, white supremacy in the U.S., um, sexism, mental illness, um, and more and more on things about parenting, but not quite as frequently as the other topics. Excellent. Um, and I know that you also are a religious studies PhD, correct? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I probably should have led with that. Religious totally studies fine. PhD in American religions. Awesome. Well, I've wanted to have you on the show forever and ever. I followed you on Twitter for like forever now, and I love it. Um, but there are so many things that we could discuss. Like you are a very public facing scholar within religious studies. And you mentioned your books, Gospel According to the Clan, which you've discussed on many different podcasts. And I think that your book is still taught in tons of different higher education classrooms around the country, which is awesome. I'm always seeing professor mutual friends of ours talking about it and how they're teaching it and getting great feedback on it from their students, which is super cool. Um, And then there's grace period, sexism, ed, final girl. And the thing that I want to talk to you about today though, is your interest in apocalypses And I know that I think I heard you recently talking about zombie apocalypses on NPR, right? Yes, on Three Line. Yeah. That was so cool because I was just like driving down the street and all of a sudden I heard, oh, this is Dr. Kelly Baker. And I was like, oh, cool. That was so exciting for me. (laughs) Um, So I know that you're working your way toward a collection of essays about ending stories and apocalypses. How did you come to be interested in endings and apocalypses in the first place? So uh, my interest in apocalypses started a really long time ago. It was when I was in high school, and um, I can vividly remember it was high school or early college maybe, but my mom decided to bring home the Left Behind books, right? Mm. So, you know, I go home, I'm sitting on the couch, and I notice this, like, stack of the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins books, and she's like, oh, they're really good. Like, you should read them, right? And I pick up the first one, and kind of thumb through it and I'm like oh my god these are terrible Mm -hmm. right but they're appealing right and so then I could like study that there are all these people that are doing it right folks in my classes were talking about how powerful these books are telling about how thrilling they are to sort of follow along with them um, about how biblical they are you can't see my scare quotes but that's Mm. sort of what I'm doing Um, and I became really fascinated then by why people first of all would read books which the prose was so bad, like it kind of hurts, but also that they were so fascinated by this idea of the rapture, right? That the righteous will somehow ascend and then everybody else gets punished and left behind in these terrible moments, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where it started is this curiosity that I had about like, why is this appealing? You know, why would someone want the apocalypse to happen. Um, I sure didn't want the world to end, but there was this kind of community of folks um, in these evangelical circles that, that wanted this. And the more I kind of followed that thread, the more I realized that there were lots of other groups of people 
that wanted the world to end too. Um, Americans, both past and present, that kind of yearned for this end of the world. And um, ever since then, I've been kind of following along with this to try to just understand why it appeals and why you want this um, and what apocalypses kind of do for us, right? Like what imagining an apocalypse actually does for a person or preparing or those sorts of things. Mm. So, so it's an early interest that um, more and more I find myself writing about and thinking about in, in different ways. Gotcha. Do you know the etymology of the word apocalypse? The term is originally Greek, and it meant revealing or unveiling. Mm. So that the original meaning was pretty much just to kind of reveal something about the world, right? To unveil something that we hadn't noticed previously. Um, it's very, very intriguing to me that the term now almost always is associated with disaster or catastrophe or the end of the world. Um, or doomsday in a way that's different from that original meaning. Um, I think we see echoes of that original meaning because oftentimes when we're looking at how people imagine the apocalypse in, um, in fiction or in real life, um, that it does reveal something about our world, that people are telling us something about what they're nervous about, what they want to happen, their concern with our current world, their desire for a different one. Um, so that that kind of early definition is there. It's just not kind of immediately what we think of um, in a way that it might have been previously. Interesting. Okay. So what, what's really fascinating is I just remembered something way back when I started this show, like in episode like 25 or 26, I actually interviewed a former person who was involved in like Armstrongism, okay. uh, which is like an apocalyptic um, group in I think it's like southwestern Missouri but he remained nameless and anonymous on the show because he was nervous about people figuring out who he was and talking mm -hmm. about because he had left this apocalyptic group and so that was such an interesting conversation to me um, that I had over two years ago at this point but you you mentioned the groups of people who are interested in it and how they're they're largely coming from different evangelical groups. And I know that you call yourself an apocalypse chaser. So I'm curious about what it means for you to be an apocalypse chaser and what you have actually found while chasing. Yeah, so it makes me think of um, I. I picked up that language because I was thinking about um, the folks that follow behind tornadoes, mm -hmm. right? You know, that they're in the tornado in this path of destruction and they're falling behind and trying to record and, but also not to get too close, right? Because of the danger that is a part of this. And um, so that image has always kind of really stuck with me because that's sort of what I'm doing too, right? As I'm following along with people, um, not super closely, uh, to see sort of what they think the world and how they think the world is going to end, right? What they think about this world, what they think about is wrong. Um, and that I kind of have diligently been following about them, both in my teaching and my research and my writing. And it does feel a bit like chasing. Like, I feel like there's a franticness to this um, and how I look through this and, and think about these ideas that um, this has never been kind of a distanced project for me, right? It's always kind of felt sort of personal um, because I have this deep ethical concern 
about folks that think we have to burn the world to the ground mm. for them to get what they want. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what what people are, are you finding any people? Like, can you tell me about some of the folks that you've found? Um, sure. Are they particular like religious groups? Are they preppers with no religious ideology? Like who are these people? Yeah. So, you know, um, there were evangelical students in my high school and in college who were doing Bible study along with Left Behind, right? Wow. Um, you know, that this worked together or they had reading groups. Um, you know, there are a lot of these groups that are sort of white supremacist militia groups who aren't necessarily religious that can be though mm -hmm. that are kind of stockpiling and preparing for some sort of end um or that are actually hoping that there's some sort of racial holy war that happens which is kind of disturbing when you think mm. about how many guns they have in an arsenal um you know i talked to some doomsday preppers when i was working on one of the earlier zombie projects these zombie doomsday preppers about what they were doing, um, interviewing them via email. And it was kind of interesting, not necessarily religious, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having food and weapons and having a fortified home, right, that you can kind of work around. So there's a lot of variety here. Um, folks that want, you know, an environmental apocalypse that humans have gone too far, right? And so what we need is a world without humans. Yeah. And I'm always like, ah, ah, that's intriguing. Oh um, you know, and so you find this kind of variety, folks that are hoping that aliens are going to come, you know, handle this for us since we can't handle ourselves, right? And humans are a problem. Um, and so the piece that's so interesting to me about all of these groups is this assumption that the world we have right now is terrible, right? Or it's broken or it's irredeemable. And so we need something big to happen, right? If we want social change, there's mm. a sort of fatalism in this that um, really disturbs me about like, well, I'm not sure we can change anything right now. Like that our yeah. actions maybe don't matter, but what we need is some sort of supernatural action for things gotcha. to become the way I want it to be. So like whenever I'm hearing you talk about this, like what I'm doing is I'm picturing you like covering your eyes with both <laughs> hands and then cracking your fingers with over one of your eyes. You know what I mean? No, it's totally accurate, right? It's like my kids who get scared, right? Where they're watching like, when, not that they're watching a lot of scary movies, right? But something happens that startles them. And it's like, oh, I'm going to cover my eyes, but I'm also going to keep my fingers outstretched a yep. little so I can peek and see what happens. And yeah, I feel like that's a lot of what I do is that I really don't want to look at it at the same time that I'm like, man, I really should be paying attention to this and looking at it in, in some sort of way. But it is, it is this funny thing where periodically I go to my partner and I'm like, let me tell you about what I read today, right? Mm. Or what I discovered, um, where I have to share, <laughs> yeah. to share that horror or trauma, um, with him in some sort of way. Um, but it is like, it's like, this is scary stuff, um, yeah. that oftentimes, folks want to undermine or claim is just, you know, people on the fringes of American society and we shouldn't pay attention to this, right? Um, but that apocalyptic rhetoric that comes from these groups has a lot of power um, and definitely appears in civic culture and politicians use it and these sorts of things. Um, 
so that I really don't want to pay attention to it at the same time. I think that I feel like I have an ethical obligation to um, say stuff about this or write about it and kind of point out that um, this is more weighty and more pressing maybe than we think it is. So you are extremely personal and honest in your writing, in your other writing, and on Twitter as well. And I know that you've mentioned and discussed your struggles with anxiety over the years, like in very public forums. How do you keep this kind of work from like driving you off a precipice? Oh, no, it's a good question. Um, I don't know, like how I manage. Um, I think uh, it involves a lot of outside time and like blowing bubbles with my kids. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I think one of the ways that I do this is that, um, I try to have clear boundaries about these types of projects that I'm working on, right. That work time is work time and other time is other time, family time, right. Time to myself, these sorts of things. Um, but it's tough, right? Like this, stuff is overwhelming. Um, much like my research on white supremacists, there's only so much of that you can do in a day. Yeah. Um, before you're like, well, humans are trash. We're all done here. Right. Like shut it down. Liz yeah. style. Um, and so I try to, to balance that and I've gotten better. Um, but it is, I mean, I think it is really, really hard. And I think also for someone like me who does have anxiety, who tends to, um, catastrophize anyway, <laughs> right? Mm. And that's how my brain works. Um, that like, there's a way in which I understand apocalypses and they make sense to me, right? Like mm-hmm. you're projecting this terrible event and then you're preparing for it. Yeah. Okay. Like that makes sense, you know? Um, and so I think in some ways that helps me do this analysis and, and balances me in a way that um, maybe it wouldn't if I didn't have that insight. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is like, limited contact is definitely <laughs> mm. well here. yeah well so you have a piece that was just published yesterday in mm-hmm. by killing the buddha on april fool's day called it's the end and nothing feels fine which is a fantastic play on the rem song by the way thank you um so dr elise morgenstein first dr liz bucar who are I guess, mutual friends of ours, um, they wrote on Twitter that if I read nothing else yesterday, I should read that piece. And, um, you know, I felt your anxiousness about our current situation, like through my phone and desktop with this current COVID-19 crisis. And then this article sort of landed in my lap yesterday. Can you tell me a little bit about the writing process of this piece, which takes place over about the last three weeks of your life? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's interesting. Um, I am one of these essayists that can sit down and do sort of researchy things, but I'm also an essayist that can kind of be led by my emotional state or what's kind of weighing on me. And um, pretty much as soon as we kind of had glimmers of COVID-19, I was thinking about what it meant to be a scholar who studies apocalypses in this moment that increasingly feels apocalyptic, right? Mm -hmm. And how strange it is because, you know, like there aren't a lot of us that do this professionally, Mm. (laughs) right? Like this is not something that most people are doing, I don't think. 
And thinking about that particular slant on this, like what, what do I notice that maybe other people don't notice? And so when I first kind of imagined this essay, I was like, I'm totally going to do this from like a scholarly perspective, right? Like, what is it like that Dr. Kelly J. Baker, right? Um, <laughs> thinks about this situation. Um, and the more I followed COVID, right? And the more urgent this became with sheltering in place orders, with social distancing, um, the more information that we had on how contagious it is, right? And how deadly it is to certain types of people, the more I realized that this could not be just a scholarly piece. Yeah, for <laughs> because, sure. Um, because I was like quietly losing my mind, right? As I was scrolling through Twitter, right? For the recent updates or to click through one more graph, right? About, mm -hmm. you know, this is the spike and this is how we flatten the curve and um, these sorts of things. Um, and so I decided to, to kind of lean into that anxiousness, right? And say, okay, what am I experiencing right now? And how does this make me feel? And how it made me feel is that I was like jumping out of my skin, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I write in the piece about that, right? Like that um, my anxiousness sort of felt like there are bees under my skin, that at any moment they're going to erupt because like, I just can't take it anymore. And that that's an interesting thing to compare to the fact that I'm so nervous about using apocalypse language generally, mm -hmm. right? Like that I'm not the person that's like, oh, this feels like the end of the world, right? Like I guess a casual commentary because this is something really serious for me. Um, so I kind of frantically wrote this essay over the span of a couple days um, where I just had to get it out, right? Like I had to get it out. And um, it actually made me feel a lot better to kind of work through both of those ideas, both the apocalyptic and the anxiety piece, um, to look at them together and to kind of see this, um, but to also kind of recognize that I was not the only one going through this, right? Mm. Like that the anxiety is high for folks and the nervousness here and the uncertainty is like working on all of us, right? In very different ways. Um, but yeah, it was one of those pieces where, um, you know, I kind of like started working on it and then I looked up and I was like, I have 4,000 words. Like, how did that happen? Mm. Um, because I had clearly strong feelings about this and things that I kind of needed to work through. And writing is always that kind of space for me as a place to kind of not only do kind of scholarly work, but also do that self-reflection and to think through things that... <laughs> I'm experiencing that I can't quite put my finger on, right? Like I can't quite know what's going on, but writing about it gives me that clarity that I wouldn't have otherwise. So a couple of years ago, I went to New York City to the New Yorker Literary Festival and I saw the Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami speak. Mm -hmm. And he talked about when he writes about challenging things, how he sort of like goes to a different place mm -hmm. and then he emerges and he doesn't remember what he wrote. <laughs> Is that kind of how you're working on this on this piece? Um, not quite. Unfortunately, I tend to remember, right? Okay. Um, but um, but it is one of those where I kind of pour myself into this. So, um, you know, by the end of the day, I'm just kind of spent, right? Because I've yeah. spent all this time kind of doing this really emotional labor to talk about this, right? Um, you know that I uh, I think I tweeted about this where I was like, well, it's me being ridiculously honest about what my anxiety disorder looks like <laughs> mm. from day to day in this piece, um, which is kind of a lot to 
hold on to right yeah. at one moment and um and to figure out like how honest I want to be too is always this kind of question that I ask when I'm writing personal essays um and uh but I do I think it takes a lot out of you and I think sometimes I look back on this stuff and I'm like oh oh yeah um I never want to read this again mm. yeah. <laughs> right? like I've done it I've said my piece maybe I don't want to dwell with it any longer than writing this piece right or maybe reading a part of it um for um you know uh just a reading at a bookstore or something like this um so for me it's not so much that i forget what i've written it's that sometimes i just don't want to return to it because it's so emotional and hard and you know why do that to yourself over and over again oh i know and i know that you you write very openly about like fretting about our current situation in the Mm -hmm. world and being extremely anxious about it and but you also say that you can't not think about it so everybody's like oh just don't think about it and you're like well i can't just not think about it it's not possible so it's like is like writing helpful for like owning your own discomfort no, it totally is. Writing has been my saving grace in a lot of these things. And, and I do love the people that just routinely tell me, like, I mean, it's my favorite thing in the world. It's not, right? Of course it's not. But, you know, like, oh, just just you know, just put it off, right? Like, just don't worry about COVID, right? Like, just yeah. don't do this. And, and I'm like, how do you live? Like, I don't, like, I don't understand, right? Because my brain is spun up most of the time. And, um, and anxiety, of course, makes this more acute than it might be. Mm. otherwise um but i think the writing is helpful for me to sort of keep track of this is the way my brain works right yeah like of course i can't not think about this because that's just kind of how i'm wired um but writing it down and writing through it helps me remember that first of all right Mm. um and also makes me feel like maybe (laughs) (laughs) I'm not as like unhinged as I sometimes feel, right? Because the current situation is making people who aren't normally anxious, anxious, right? Right. Um, And and so I think that that's helpful to me too. Um, And and part of my goal when I do this kind of stuff is that I want to humanize these disorders for people, right? So that maybe if someone reads this, they won't say to someone, maybe you should stop thinking about this, right? Or, and my favorite one most recently is I had someone write me about this article, this essay, um, to say like, you should just stop having nightmares if mm. you're having nightmares. Yeah, and that's I was like, super helpful. Okay, <laughs> like, thanks. Yeah. Um, also not how this works, right? <laughs> Right. Well, and I know that you're not a great sleeper. And like, what's been crazy for me is the last month, two months, I've been sleeping like four hours a night. Like I'll go to bed at 10 and then I'll be up at like two o'clock, like wide awake. And I know that you struggle with that as well because you write about it. Mm -hmm. And you write in this piece, you have to stave off the panic that chases me, you, when Mm -hmm. I wake up each morning. I usually have like 30 to 45 seconds right now. (laughs) For me every day, you know, Uh it's like the first like 30 to 45 seconds of each morning for me right now are pretty good. And like, I'm, I'm punishing myself to make my brain forget about these, this Mm -hmm. right now. Like the other day I ran 15 miles and my brain was so exhausted that I sat there and watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Hulu for like four straight hours. Because that's all right. I was capable of doing. It was like right. three glorious hours where I forgot yeah. about all of this. Right. Are you yeah. able to rest? How are you escaping? Yeah, no. So um, I am a romance novel buff, right? So 
um, when this kind of stuff happens and my anxiety gets really high, I'm usually like rereading familiar novels. Like I'm not even reading new stuff, right? I'm like, I don't have the bandwidth for this, right? Yeah. Like I need to read something where I know what happens, where I know the drama is not high, <laughs> you know, yeah. to do this. Um, I find myself, um, I, we, we love Brooklyn Nine-Nine in my house, but we um, often find ourselves um, binge watching Parks and Recreation. Oh yeah. Right? Um, because that is just, you know, sort of a cheerful show, but I do find myself watching, um, TV as a way to kind of maneuver in, um, some sort of way. I'm spending a lot more time sitting on my porch outside in the sunshine Good, from yes. like, you know, just <laughs> to kind of bring that in. Um, right now we're watching Tiger King, which mm. is also kind of a slow moving train wreck to oh watch. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but it's also one of those things where, you know, you're just kind of looking at each other and you can forget like what's going on in the world because everything that's happening is so bizarre that you just can't, like you can't look away. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's also one of those things where I'm like, Oh, humans, right. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. We're just going to be strange. And some of us are going to be strange. <laughs> than yeah. others. Oh. oh my gosh. Okay. So, uh, is this like for for the United States? Is this like week five that this has actually been like sort of taken seriously? I think that that's about as far as I think that's accurate, right? Because I okay. think my school system was slow on okay. doing this more than other places were. Um, yeah. Okay. Because check this out. Like you write about like the early stages of this crisis as quote the trickles of information and coverage grew into a stream and then a river, and then raging waters battering a flimsy dam. So check this out. I was in Brazil from February 11th through 17th, and it was already super bad mm -hmm. in China on those days. And I thought about it literally the entire trip. Mm -hmm. I desperately wanted to back out of going on the trip, and I was in close quarters with hundreds of people in Sao Paulo, Brazil, the entire time. And it was freaky. So that was like six weeks ago now. How early, and I was concerned then. I almost right. bailed on the whole thing. How early were you concerned? So it took me a little bit longer to be concerned. Um, and so it wasn't, so it's was more like the end of February, right? Where mm -hmm. I was like, oh, oh, right. We should have, mm -hmm. I should have been paying attention to this. And I actually had a trip, like a conference trip um, in early March. And I spent the whole time completely freaked out mm -hmm. <laughs> like you, right. Mm -hmm. Where I like, every time I turned around, I'm like putting hand sanitizer, you know, and I'm like wiping all the way up to my elbows. Not oh, really. so you went, I, so I went on this okay. trip. Right. And, um, and so, but I spent most of my time, like, uh, this is before we had like the six feet rule, right. I was already yep. there, you know? Um, and, uh, it was interesting to me because so many other people, we're not doing this kind of stuff already, mm -hmm. right? Like that there was this very much of like, oh, this is overblown. We shouldn't be paying attention. And I'm like, I haven't slept in two days and I'm paying attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I on this trip? Um, and I think that it's intriguing to me how quickly we went from knowing this is kind of an international thing um, and now are like deeply paying attention, but this sort of slowness of America to react to this, um, mm -hmm. partially because we didn't know because our leaders did not share. Correct. 
information, important information. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, and then my concern hit hard, right? So um, I had multiple trips that I was supposed to do this spring and early summer. And I was often the first person that had contacted these universities and said, hey, this has to be a web thing because I'm not traveling. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, well, we don't know if it's going to be a problem yet. And I was like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying I'm not traveling. You can do whatever you would like. Yeah. Um, and, and part of this, too, is because I have a... Um, parent who's immunocompromised right mm. and so it's for me it was one of those where it's like I can't like I can't chance this um and I think now people most people are kind of there but I still run into people that are like oh it's overblown this is really not an issue and I'm just like I don't are you not scrolling as much as I am right like, I'm not doing the interactive charts on the New York Times <laughs> that tell us, you know, all this information about this is what social distancing does, right? This is what sheltering in place. Um, yeah. So obviously, I guess they're not, or maybe I just have these obsessive tendencies right now, which could also be, and is very likely to be true. Well, let's tie in some of your religious studies knowledge here really quick and your years of experience in that field. So you compare this story to the story of the flood, which is present in multiple cultures from Gilgamesh to the Bible, to the Greeks and much, much more. So like usually in these stories, there's like a God or a God who gets mad or tired or sick of people and they, or it devastate us. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but feel we've acted with like reckless abandon as humans for so long that this is like nature's way of like disposing of us, the world's most rampant and you know, we're destructive pests in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. From your years as like a religious studies scholar, how does what we are witnessing in front of our faces resonate with like the vast literary canon from the world's religions? Right. I mean, so yeah, you can find these instances of floods, right. Or this sort of natural destruction all over the place. Um, and I tend <laughs> to not be a doomsday prophet, right. That's not where my training is. Um, and so you do find these resonances and I think you can take these examples from, um, the literary canon and kind of apply them to now, right? Like you can, you, you can see how this works together and you can see how different cultures have responded to this. Right. And, um, and I mean, like you, I think part of me is like, yep, humans are just terrible. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, and we could see this as some sort of natural you know, progression, which is, I think, what some of these folks who were writing and reading, you know, um, or listening to these stories could also think, right, that you could look for corruption, and you could see this, and you could understand why there would be this vengeance acted upon you um, in some sort of way, and, and I think it does, like, this does feel like that kind of moment, right, um, that this could be something that we're um, facing, I think fundamentally for me, uh, the issue is, is that I don't actually think humans overwhelmingly are terrible. I think some humans are terrible, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, that they're, um, that we're not inherently good or bad. Right. Um, yeah. and that, that that's helpful to me in understanding this, right. As opposed to going like, straight into the, oh no, like, um, you know, very much the Lilo and Stitch, our friends need to be punished kind of mm. mode yeah. um, that I want us to kind of stay away from, even though I feel it, right? Like I feel it down deep. Um, 
that could be a, a way to handle this. And, um, and it just, the other piece of this, I think for me, that's so bizarre is that it kind of feels like those apocalyptic movies, right? Yeah. So oftentimes what I'm not thinking about is from world religions. I'm thinking about it from all the like pandemic films, right? Or yep. zombie apocalypse films where I was like, oh gosh, like this is the scroll, right? Like this is the scroll that starts off the movie where they're going through the news coverage, right? Um, before everything goes really, really bad. Um, and I very quickly had to be like, that line of thinking is not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now I still find myself doing it, but yeah, I mean, it's just, um, the weight of everything that's happening right now and how like unreal and cinematic it feels. Um, I think it's also hard to deal with when we are going through social media or 24 hour news cycle or these sorts of things all the time. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. that gives it a sort of unreality. Um, where it's like, oh, this is what's happening. Huh. Okay. Well, and like, I, I was just thinking about that news scroll, right? And mm-hmm. I watched uh, the Apocalypse series of American Horror Story, I guess like six okay. months ago. And in the very first episode of that series, um, you see that scroll where people are waiting mm-hmm. in line at Starbucks and like people are frantically calling each other. You got to meet me at this airport in 20 minutes. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm getting mm-hmm. Starbucks. And then all of a sudden, boom, the world is totally different. And it's eerie when you think about it like that, because right. that's exactly what is happening right mm-hmm. now. Except for like, There's not like bombs or anything falling right. from the sky or meteors, but it like feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah, no, and it just feels like everything is urgent and pressing all the time, right? Yeah. So the, a trip to the grocery store is no longer just a trip to the grocery store. I haven't um, gone in days. Right? You know, it's, it's that this is a chance where you get infected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that uh, people can't go to the park anymore because of the concern over this. Um, you know, that uh, my kids, we have a park near us and um, one kid that's more like me than the other. And it's the kindergartner. And, you know, we're at the park and this park is not remarkably populated. We're sort of in a rural place. Um, But my partner and my other child were way ahead of us. And um, this jogger goes to like pass them. Right. Mm -hmm. And my little one for like 50 feet away screams six feet away, six feet away. Right. Um, Like instantly (laughs) something that would have not even like registered for him. I don't Mm -hmm. think, you know, five weeks ago now is very clearly a, this is what we have to do so that everything feels um, more fraught and I think dangerous than it did previously. Um, So that this stuff that we just kind of did in our day to day, right. Chatting with a coworker somewhere near a coffee pot or standing in line at Starbucks now is not even possible because Mm. of the potential for infection. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I think that, is part of what makes it so hard too, is it's like, Oh, all this like mundane stuff that you just do every day now can be really dangerous to you. And that that's kind of hard for your brain to hold on to all the time. I think without freaking out. (laughs) You you know how like, um, so you you say that like you know instead of like staying like super positive, right. um, you're sort of like veering apocalyptic. I am. And I'm trying not to, but yeah. It's so happening. like you know like when you go to work on Monday morning, you, you walk in and like that overly cheery person that you work with is like, "Hey, how's it going?" And instead of smiling and waving like they expect, 
um, you know, like you're, everybody wants you to say, oh, I'm great. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. When that isn't really true most of the time, most of the time we're kind of like, ugh. Right. Um, so like I would say something time, sometimes like, ugh, or uh, kind of lousy. Right. And because my thought is always like, if somebody asks me how I am, why should I lie about it? You know, do you feel like honesty instead of like unwavering optimism is like super important right now? So I always think that honesty is the best policy, um, uh, just kind of generally. And um, I think the kind of unwavering Pollyanna optimism does us a remarkable disservice in ordinary time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it does us, um, I think it's negligent now, right? Like that this is not the way that we should approach it. Um, that we could, should be real honest about the situation we're in. That doesn't mean we can't be hopeful that it's going to turn out better, right, than projections are. But I don't think we can be optimistic that everything's going to work out and go back to the way it was, right? Like, I don't think that that is fair. Um, And I think that there are some people that really need to hold on to it that way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is a bump in the road. I think they're going to be back to normal. (laughs) Right. And and I think that um, that's just not true, right? It's not true. Um, this moment has revealed a lot about who we consider essential and non-essential, about how our society works. Um, there are great conversations right now um, that are even more and more obvious about um, the dangers of capitalism mm-hmm. and what it does to us. Um, a lot of good conversations about um, the way that corporations matter more than people. Yes. Um, and so I, I just feel like we should acknowledge that and understand that and also be willing to note that this could be really bad right um not to necessarily dwell in the sort of awful projections but just kind of prepare and understand that even if it doesn't feel bad for you right now doesn't mean it's not bad for other people Mm -hmm. and i think that's the piece that is really frustrating to me people that are like oh it's not so bad for me and i'm like of course it's not so bad for you right like you're working from home and you're doing zoom i'm like you're not the walmart employee rushing to prepare grocery delivery day in and day out when you are being slammed right it yeah. all so makes you susceptible to the virus because you're still in contact with people, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to be real cautious about this and very thoughtful of the fact that this is harder on a lot of other people and that we need to really think that through. Um, yeah. And to really think through um, that if grocery store clerks are essential right now, then we definitely should be paying them <laughs> for yeah. their essentialness, right? Yep. Um, and, and treating them better um, and guaranteeing that they're also safe. Um, well, and like a tremendous amount of people who are currently working every day as normal are the people that a lot of people in this country don't think should be making $15 an hour. Right, which makes me bananas. Um, Absolutely. Where it's like at least $15, right? At least. At least, at least. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, so it is the, the kind of conversations that we're having around this now, I think are part of a silver lining, right? That maybe it's terrible that it took a pandemic, right? Mm. For us to have these kinds of conversations. But I do think something good could come out of that, right? To rethink minimum wage or rethink how we 
categorize people by the employment that they have, right? Or um, what we actually need to keep our society running versus Mm -hmm. what we think we need. Well, (laughs) and, and, and health insurance, you know, I used to live in the UK and I used to live in Canada. So I know what it's like to have health insurance in other countries. And like, I also saw a lot of reports recently of like somebody who got sick with COVID-19, who was treated and who was discharged. And then they got a bill for like $35,000. Right. Because clearly they can pay that. And that, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? Um, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and we were already, I mean, and this is the thing, right? Is that we were already, people were doing um, all of these like fundraisers online for people who didn't have insurance for like the normal health catastrophes, yeah. right? That folks face. Um, and so in the face of this one, it's so many people, right? And the expense, like, of course, someone's not going to be able to pay for that, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and I, and just the kind of the, the sort of capitalism embedded in that, right? Like that we know we saved your life, but also <laughs> profit time, <laughs> profit time off of this. Um, and so the kind of ridiculousness of that, I think um, really kind of wears on me. And I, and we, I mean, and we're having these conversations about healthcare, but it is abundantly clear to me that most of the leadership and our current administration is not taking this issue seriously, right? Mm-hmm. The healthcare is not something they're paying attention to. Um, when the president can talk about how, you know, like it could be a win if only 100 to 200,000 people die from this. Yeah. And three um, weeks ago, he was saying, we only have like 15 people. It's, we got it under control. We got a lid on it. Yeah, I love the like the jump from fifteen to like two hundred thousand, right? Yeah. Where it's like you can't blame me if it's two hundred thousand. It's like sure we can blame you. <laughs> right? Well, and then I um, like I was also you know I also follow a lot of folks on online um, from a vast variety of ideologies, and I remember the recently uh, uh, the political can- the the presidential candidate Joe Walsh, who was running against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination, posted on Twitter saying that healthcare is not a human right and that, and now we have a pandemic and i'm just like thinking like wow we are so broken in so many ways if right. we don't think that a, a a person just because of how much money they make or what they do for a living shouldn't be able to go to the doctor is just right. beyond me no i mean and it is it's one of those where um both uh, my partner and i have at a variety of times been contractors right or gig employees mm-hmm. where you don't have health insurance and um you know, uh, it doesn't take long before you're forking out a lot of money for things that are pretty minor, right? Like tubes in the ears of a toddler, you know, where they're like, oh, before we can do this, you need to hand us (laughs) $5,000. Yeah. Bankrupt. Boom. Right. Like, like here, like, you know, as if that's something that I could just like, oh yeah, hold on. I'll grab it out of my purse. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it does show that, brokenness. And I think it also really shows us um, how much humans don't matter Mm -hmm. in certain political ideologies, right? That um, human life could be understood as numbers, right? As a profit and loss statement here, right? It was only a hundred thousand and it's like, no, it should not be, that should not ever be our goal, right? Our goal should be as few people as possible because we've done the most we can and guaranteed that people have access to healthcare and these sorts of things. But that's not necessarily what's happening, right? 
Um, and so it is, I mean, it is striking to me and, and it does show all the kinds of faults in the system that we have now that a lot of us already knew about, but you, it's unavoidable now to mm -hmm. kind of think through those. Um, and, you know, I think if I were an unwavering optimist, I would be like, oh, things are going to change and they'll be better. I mean, <laughs> I can, I can hope maybe, right, that the system changes in some sort of way and that moving through this pandemic will change the way people think about this kind of stuff. Um, but I think folks who think that human lives can be reduced to statistics and numbers so that we can actually win in this scenario, their minds aren't going to be changed. Right. Well, does this, or do you remember that article that came out a few years ago on, I think it was on Huffington Post, and I think the title was something along the lines of, I don't know how to teach you to care about other people. Right. Do you right. remember that? Yes. Yes. That's what it reminds me of. And you know, like I, you live in Florida, so you're like, mm -hmm. you're super far away from me, but I live in Buffalo, New York, which is literally, I can see Canada when I'm mm -hmm. in downtown Buffalo. So like we're standing on the Buffalo side and healthcare in, in, you know, the U S is like ridiculous and over mm -hmm. and like, I can see a town across <laughs> the river where everybody has it no matter what. And it's right. right there. It's almost like, like, like the garden of Eden, like across a river that is like <laughs> a raging torrent, the Niagara river. I can't get to it, but it's like right there. And it's so close. No, I mean, I live in Florida where, you know, like our governor just um, yesterday, yesterday, right, um, April 1st, decided that we should probably be staying at home. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, and I've only been screaming at him for like multiple weeks now on Twitter, right? Yeah. Like, not that he cares about me because I didn't vote for him anyway, but like, you know, just this kind of disregard. Yep. Well, and your tweets yeah. about the beaches in Florida during spring break were epic. I was like, oh God, Kelly Baker is rocking it on Twitter today. Oh, oh man. I mean, it's one of those things where um, I was telling one of my sisters, I said, I try really hard to be a good person in this world and not to hate people, right? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's not the energy that I want to be a part of, right? Yeah. I'm like, but our governor... And spring breakers are testing my resolve here. Yeah. <laughs> um, because like you would read interviews with spring breakers who are like, you know, like I might get it, but like, I don't care. I'm here to have fun. And it's mm -hmm. just that utter disregard for other people where yeah. it's like, so maybe don't think about yourself here. Yeah. Like maybe think about the fact that you're going to travel through multiple states to get back to where you are. And you don't know who you're dealing with who's immune compromised. You don't know who you're dealing with um, who has conditions that are going to make this more, more susceptible to this, right? Um, you know, are you going to deal with your grandparents, right? Like, there are all these sorts of pieces of this, but that, that, does, that like, individual concern there, right? It only matters that I'm having fun. Yeah. Well, that, and there's a video of that guy who looked like he got punched in the face and said, if I get corona, I get corona. Oh. You know? and that oh. guy. And like, yeah, I, bet, I, I bet he got it. Um, yeah. Okay. So real quick, you, ha, you, you and I have like, you know, we've been around, we're in our thirties like mid thirties. And so um, we've seen things like Ebola and Zika and SARS uh, mm -hmm. in our, in our world, you know, in the news that mostly happens in other places. Right. And, you know, 
we haven't really dealt with those things. And so right. I'm curious how your like apocalyptic metric reading is for this situation compared to other things like Ebola. Right. So I think that coronavirus, right, COVID-19 feels different in some ways, um, partially because it's so contagious, right? Partially because it spreads so quickly um, and, you know, that it just, that it feels more like mass pandemic. Now, maybe that's because I'm U.S. centric, right? Because I'm in the U.S. and I'm like, oh no, it's here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's entirely could be a part of this. But I also remember Ebola feeling pretty damn apocalyptic too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that you could see the images of this and what it did to bodies, right? And just see how this like wiped out communities. Um, so I think these other ones um, have these endings too, right? And maybe it's not as widespread, but it is ending things, right? And reshifting order and killing people and, and these sorts of ways. So I don't know that I would necessarily be like, oh, this is more apocalyptic, right? Um, because I think when we think about apocalypses, we always think global. But I think we can also think about them as personal, right? Like what breaks your world, right? or what refashions your world, or what makes you think that your world had ended. And a lot of times that's losing people close to you, right? Or mm -hmm. watching a whole village go down because of a particular disease, right? That we can't respond to quickly enough. Um, so I think when we understand that personal versus that global, it's a more complicated way to approach this, right? Um, so it doesn't have to be mass spread pandemic. <laughs> to be terrible and wrenching and to really do harm. Um, and that's what I kind of try to keep thinking back to with this, right? Is that I think there are folks that are trying to minimize something like Ebola and it's like, no, like that was serious, right? Like it's yeah. not, and, and maybe our approach shouldn't be to minimize <laughs> yeah. previous like diseases that had come before that had a mass toll, right? But I, know that people try to do this right yeah and and part of this is unfortunately our news culture right where everything has to be somehow greater yeah than the thing that came before it right it can't be a pandemic it has to be the biggest pandemic and yeah it's like, it i tell you what the, the the thing that i did in 2011 is i stopped getting channels on my television mm -hmm. and i went all print for my for my media consumption mm -hmm. and I feel like that was the greatest decision I ever could have made for my own information yeah. intake. No, I think it I think it's good. I don't watch television news. Like I just don't. Right? Yeah. Um I get a lot of my stuff from online, right? Where I'm reading from particular sources, right? Or in this instance, like most of my information about COVID comes from the Florida Health Department, right? Mm. Who has a great site and has all this information. And so I'm following like legitimate sources yeah um, well that's how that's how erie county in buffalo is doing it too it's fantastic it's great right like and you can go i mean now i'm not sure it's great for my brain because every day i'm on there and then i'm texting one of my sisters and i'm like you see the you see the count today right yeah so i'm not sure it's doing good things for me but it's a good way for me to have this information but i do think it's that kind of um this like pundit culture that's on tv that i find so painful yeah 
watch and participate in because everyone's screaming at everyone and they want to have the biggest take or the hottest take. Right. And to be there. And I don't think that helps us. Um, and I think also that the, um, political affiliations of certain networks also mean that you get bad information. Right. And which is even worse. Um, you know, uh, my parents like to watch Fox news and I'm like, I can't even talk to you guys about this with Fox news. (laughs) I'm like, like, we just can't do it. It's fine. And, um, but it's also me coming to them and being like, okay, here are the things that we need to know about this. Mm. And you guys cut it out. (laughs) Do the things you're supposed to. Um, Yeah. So there's another piece of your article, of your essay that shook me bad, like big time. I was like losing it. Um, You write about getting awakened by a nightmare of your six-year-old dying from this. And I have a six-year-old also. So we we both have six-year-olds right now. Um, How are your children handling the isolation and how are they coping with your handling of the situation? Like, are all of you on the same page? Um, Like, I I get the sense that you're all very, very much taking this seriously. No, we do. We do take it seriously. Um, You know, like I said, my little one is our social distance. Yeah. Enforcer. Yeah, he's like the um, czar, the social distancing czar of the Baker he House. Yes. And I mean, and you know, um, early on they kind of laughed at me about the hand washing and the hand sanitizer and this sort of thing, but they took it seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Like so and now they like check us where they're like, Did you wash your hands? And I'm like, Yeah, I did. Like I'm like the hand washing queen right now, right? Anytime I think about it, I'm washing my hands. Yeah. So um, you know, and so they are taking it pretty seriously at the same time that there's something nice about being a kid and that you're kind of unaware of the larger implications, right? So that they can do the kind of nuts and bolts, wash your hands, try not to touch your face, right? Do social distance, find activities at home to do this sort of thing. So mostly they're handling it. Okay. Though they are also remarkably observant, right? Mm. And so when I get news, about things they're like what is it today and i'm like "Mm -mm, mm -mm, no no just no um and so i think so i think that's kind of interesting i think it's harder on them um that they're stuck with me and my partner all the time Mm -hmm. because we're not near as fun as other 11 or six year olds yeah for real i get that 100 percent. yeah and um and my um my 11 year old um who is more extroverted uh told me the other day remarkably dramatically because we're like headed towards tween um you know like i can't live like this with just you guys and i'm like okay all right cool and that's totally fair it is totally fair like i i completely understand right um and so uh but it is it is the kind of the piece of this and i think also it's the uncertainty about how long this is going to last that's working on them harder right like yeah and it doesn't help that our state is doing this like piece by piece. So it's like, Oh, well, school will be out until this date. And then it gets to almost that date. And they're like, Oh no, just kidding. Now it's going to last even longer. Right. And then we're going to get to that date and then they're going to do this. Right. And so I think they imagine that this is helping us somehow (laughs) Mm. by not being like, Oh, by the way, school is out. Right. Yeah. 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 They're going to cancel it for the whole year. They totally are. And, but I think they assume that maybe by giving it to us like piece by piece, 
we're not going to lose our minds. And I'm like, no, it doesn't matter. Right. Like we just, this is not a great situation no matter what. And, um, and I would like to have all the information instead of this like tag along game, right. That we're doing now. Um, so they're, they're handling it. Um, I think it's just kind of hard to understand the scale of something like this. Right. And, um, and to also not make them terrified, but make them aware. Right. Like, so you don't want to be like, Oh, this is really, really bad. Right. And like put that on their shoulders at the same time that they have to take it somewhat seriously, Mm. (laughs) you know, um, more as them being vectors, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah. then them being the ones who are going to suffer the most from it so and earlier you mentioned that you've been interviewing groups over the years who want apocalypses to happen who like are just waiting for it and are preparing for it and it's so creepy um but you write in the article i wonder about all those people who wish for an apocalypse do they still want one now are you like covertly keeping tabs <laughs> on folks who have expressed that they wanted in the past? Um, not, not so much though. I have been following, um, these interesting pieces on doomsday preppers mm. and who are like, Oh no, we've got this right. Like this might be different than what we imagined, but we're totally prepared for it anyway. And I kind of want to shake them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's sort of this like very blase approach to it, right? Where it's like, well, we prepared for one, you know, we're prepared for all of them. And I'm like, are you? Like, you know, I don't think preparing for zombies means you're prepared for a pandemic. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but those feel like different things. Um, so I haven't necessarily, I, I've kind of been peeking in some way or another. I'm not sure how well I would handle it if I see people that are actually like, yes, this is what we wanted, right? Like mm. that might be the straw for me <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in some sort of way, um, because I'm just not sure. Um, like you're getting a bat yeah. and getting in the car. Oh no, no. I mean, it would just be over, right? Oh, or I God. think I would just be like, what is happening here? And you know, and there are like, folks who have said these really terrible things, right? About like, oh, the reason we have this is because of this, right? Or that really understand it as some kind of punishment. And I just can't even engage with folks that want to approach it this way, right? Like I just, I can't do it. Um, yeah. Uh, because it's so inhumane, right? To at this moment be like, oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of you are getting punished because of this thing. Um, and I just, that's not helpful. No one needs that right now. And so, yeah, well, and like, whenever I hear the the latest death projections within the United States, which as of yesterday were 100,000 to 240,000, I right. fully expect that 240,000 is what they're expecting. Yes. So that when 240,000 people do die, they can say, oh, it was within our projection, 240,000, but it is on 100% on the absolute most extreme end of that projection. Yes. And that's what I expect. And that's what is just, I'm having a hard time with words here because I feel like this makes my brain just like shut down, right? Like anytime I hear those numbers or I hear people that are like, oh, but you know, like 240,000 people, that wouldn't be that bad. And I'm like, what is happening here? Right? Like, how do you sleep at night (laughs) if this is how you approach it, right? Um, Or that you can make it this 
almost like a game, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, we had these losses, but not all of the losses we could have had, right? So this means we win, right? And it's like, no, um, because 240,000 is 240,000 individuals, right? Who love people and who are loved by people and have impact and will be missed. And it's just so awful to take that human element out by just doing these kinds of numbers. And that's what's happening. Ugh. Okay. So my end times novel list is as follows. (laughs) A Canticle for Leibowitz, Oryx and Crake, Who Fears Death by Nika Okorafor, and maybe some Kim Stanley Robinson, like New York 2140 or something like that. Right. What is your end times novel list to sort of like do like like a lighter ending on our conversation a lighter ending so mine are heavily influenced by zombies this shouldn't surprise you since this is kind of where my work has oh landed. for sure um so one of my favorite um series is the news flesh series by mira grant which is a zombie apocalypse novel um set of novels um but it's one of the few where the world pretty much continues running like normal. Mm. So it's more about the way in which rights and freedoms get reduced and the Mm. way society gets reduced, but you still have the internet, right? You still have people communicating in these different ways. Plausible, Um, very plausible. It's super plausible. Now, I don't know that I would suggest that people go out and read that right now, Um, but it's, I think it's very smart about how these kinds of crises can lead to a grab of power (laughs) Mm -hmm. by political leaders, these sorts of things and, and how people survive that day to day when something like that threat is remarkably normal. Right. Yeah. Um, The other one that I really like is called um, the Reapers are the angels, which is this beautiful novel by um, uh, I think it's Alden Bell. I think maybe I'm going to get his first name wrong. Um, but it is a zombie apocalypse novel, but it follows a young female protagonist as she kind of explores the world after zombies. And the interesting piece about it is that she was remarkably young when the apocalypse happened. So all she kind of knows is the post-apocalypse. And so much of the book is about her finding beauty, right, in the ruins of the world, um, which is not necessarily what you have going on a lot of times in these types of novels, right? And so it's wonderfully fabulous. I was thinking about Stephen King's The Stand mm. today. Again, not sure I would want to read it right now, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, or, um, and I really love Justin Cronin's The Passage. I did not like the other two novels in that series, but I loved the first one. Um, and so... Uh, it, it's interesting because since apocalypse is what I do primarily um, for this research, I tend to not read <laughs> yeah. a lot of this in my downtime, right? Where I'm like, I do enough of this in the day to day. So yeah, it was interesting. And then I would like to go on record that I hate Cormac McCarthy's The Road. So I just need everyone to know <laughs> that before they start recommending to me that I read. And this periodically happens, right? Where people are like, you need to read this book. You yeah. love it. And I'm like, I hate every single page of that book. <laughs> um, so, 
Well, and like that, that that's another reason why I said Oryx and Crake specifically of that Margaret Atwood trilogy. Mm-hmm. Because Oryx and Crake to me is so much better than the other two. I just love it so much. Mm-hmm. So I know exactly what that feels like to love the first part of a story and kind of just like, I'm just going to leave Oryx and Crake as like a standalone incredible. Right. I don't need the other two. Just pretend that the other two didn't happen, right? Which is sort of what I've done um, with the following books in the passages. I was like, I don't know these books, right? These books don't exist. Well, so Dr. (laughs) Kelly Baker, uh, I am like just so glad to have you. I feel like this has just been an awesome little therapy session for both of us where we can just kind of talk about our concerns, what we're seeing in a very honest way and not have to say to each other, just buck up, cheer up. I love that. Um, It's refreshing. And I'm so glad that you were able to spend this hour and change with me today. It's just a delight. Um, Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work in general? So uh, Twitter is sort of my happy place. Um, So uh, most often that's where folks can find me. Um, I'm pretty easy to find if you just put in Kelly J Baker, I usually pull up pretty quick. Um, I also have a site, which is kellyjbaker.com. Um, but as our, um, I'm like most people in which I'm not very good at updating it. Um, so Twitter is probably the best place to find me and the place where I'm also the most interactive, right? Yeah. Um, I have Facebook because I have Facebook, but I try to spend as little time on there as is humanly possible. Awesome. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Baker, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. I have appreciated this so much. Um, thank you again for having me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.